guys. Welcome to Relatable. Happy Friday. I am so excited for you to listen to today's conversation with Christopher Rufo. Man, it is mind-blowing. We're talking about critical theory, where it is, how it exists, how it's going to break down society if we do not push back against it. And this is just one of those conversations that is going to leave you shaking your head, but also feeling so informed, equipped, and empowered. So without further ado, here is Chris Rufo. Christopher, thank you so much for joining me. It's great to be with you. Can you tell everyone who you are and what you do? Sure. I'm Chris Rufo. I'm the director of the Discovery Institute Center on Wealth and Poverty. I'm also a writer for City Journal. And uh, the last two years, I've been covering the issues of uh, public disorder in West Coast cities. So looking at homelessness, addiction, Mm. mental illness, crime. Uh, But uh, starting in the summer, I took on a a new beat, uh, looking at critical race theory in our public institutions. So that's been keeping me uh, quite busy the last 90 days. And what caused that transition from looking at these West Coast cities to uh, looking at these ideologies like critical race theory in our government? It all really emerged from my work uh, looking at the policies in the city of Seattle. And Mm. uh, uh, earlier in the summer, I got a a message from a city of Seattle employee that told me, um, you know, hey, the city of Seattle is now holding segregated diversity trainings. Uh, There's one civil rights training for uh, white employees and one training uh, for people of color working at the city. Uh, so this immediately caught my attention. I, I thought that, you know, the kind of irony of the Seattle Office of Civil Rights holding seg- racially segregated training sessions uh, had the makings of a good story. So I, I filed a records request. Mm. Uh, and when I got the records request back, I was just uh, shocked, horrified and dismayed uh, at the content that they were teaching, which was totally in line with critical race theory, which I had been following uh, as an observer for the last number of years. Uh, and that story, once I reported on it, I, I put out the documents, I wrote the analysis for City Journal uh, and the New York Post. Um, that really set me off on this journey where I started getting uh, dozens and then hundreds of whistleblowers mm. uh, from public institutions all over the country uh, telling me, hey, we have trainings that are on the same kind of thing uh, happening here. And I was particularly interested uh, in the training sessions that were teaching these uh, extremely divisive and kind of Uh, and kind of racially uh, kind of toxic principles in the federal government. So uh, that's the story that I really latched on to. I did the Treasury. I did the National Nuclear Laboratories. I did the CDC. I did EPA. I did State Department. uh, You name it. This is something that has pervaded our institutions. uh, And I thought that it was uh, something I should follow uh, as a journalist. And tell me, what is the content of these trainings, at least in general? Yeah, it all kind of critical race theory is this idea in the American context that uh, the United States is fundamentally an irredeemably racist country Mm -hmm. uh, and that all of our social institutions uh, from the Constitution, our legal system, our social structures, uh, how kind of the government and economy works uh, is is kind of a a smokescreen or kind of a camouflage for naked racial oppression. And the idea is that um, because our institutions are, are actually uh, not leading to equality, uh, to freedom, to equal protection, um, they're actually enabling white supremacy. The only choice is to destroy them. And what that means in practice is that they argue that um, you know, white employees in the training context uh, can be reduced to this uh, racial essence of whiteness, uh, which is a kind of white supremacist in nature, whether overt or covert whether externalized or psychologically internalized, and the values uh, that we think of as, uh, as good, such as objectivity, intellectualization, uh, rationality, 
uh, mathematics, comfort, uh, all of those things are actually uh, just kind of uh, rationalizations for uh, white supremacy. And they have to be dismantled in the workplace, in individual psychologies, and in society at large. And, and these are ideas that you know, have been percolating in academia for decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can kind of laugh at them and mock them and dismiss them as the kind of uh, fevered fantasies of an intellectual class. Uh, but what's happened almost uh, silently and invisibly is that these ideas have jumped out of, out of the academy and started uh, really infiltrating into all of our public institutions so that uh, I, I think without hyperbole, I can say in almost every uh, school district, uh, in almost every federal uh, agency, uh, in almost every kind of university and education system, this has become the dominant ideology, the kind of political uh, political philosophy that has the most uh, power and authority within the institutions. And I think once it's exposed, once people truly understand what it means uh, in a kind of concrete, tangible way, once they actually read the documents, I I think people uh, have been unanimously horrified, whether they're on the right, in the center, or on the left. And you talked about that critical race theory asserts that whiteness as it is defined, not just by the color of your skin, but by certain constructs and concepts, even as basic as objectivity and a a certain perspective of history and mathematics and science and things like that, uh, that it has to be dismantled, critical race theory asserts, or it has to be destroyed, I guess. And how does critical race theory and these trainees, how do they suggest destroying and dismantling these concepts and constructs of whiteness? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great question. I, I think if you look back at the actual literature of critical race theory, some of the founding texts from the 90s and early 2000s, um, they're very explicit. Uh, they say we're deeply skeptical of the idea of progress. We're deeply skeptical of the constitutional system. We're deeply skeptical of the uh, kind of legal uh, structures that we have uh, of individual rights. Um, and they want to replace them with kind of group identity-based rights and a group identity-based power system uh, that is, in their own language, uh, incompatible with the the American Constitution. And they're actually doing a good job at dismantling these, because the Mm. the first step is really to uh, kind of create a a, a social system where um, upholding uh, the American Constitution, upholding the American values, upholding objectivity or individual rights uh, is seen as somehow wrong or evil or aberrant. Uh, and then they're attacking individual psychology and the individual psychology of people that are in these institutions, uh, creating a tremendous sense of fear uh, where they're able to establish kind of institutional dominance. And then they're really kind of corrupting the institutions from the inside out. They're gaining political power, uh, often at taxpayer expense in the kind of bureaucracies, uh, whether it's education, uh, university system or, or, or the kind of government. Uh, and then they're slowly kind of dismantling the structures from within. And I think the height of irony is that uh, for people who don't believe in the American system, uh, the, the greatest kind of advocates of critical race theory are funded by American taxpayers. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is what we have to wake up to. We have to say, you know what, uh, if you're going to be uh, kind of uh, at the taxpayer expense, if you're going to be a public servant, you have to serve the public and you have to believe in the fundamental uh, kind of principles and systems of the United States. And if you don't, you're out of here. Uh, you can practice critical race theory under your First Amendment protections on your own time and your own dime, uh, but you don't have the right to be subsidized by taxpayers 
And I find it absolutely outrageous that every poor American, uh, every working class American, every plumber and Uber driver and electrician in this country is going to pay the six figure salaries of critical race theorists who have nothing but contempt for the American people, nothing but hatred for American history and nothing, uh, no greater ambition uh, than to destroy the United States itself. So uh, I understand the philosophy from an academic perspective, but I'm wondering what they believe this looks like practically, especially like within corporations or local governments or within, you know, federal agencies. You know, they're probably not. I mean, you tell me just coming out and saying in these in these trainings, hey, look, our our goal is to dismantle the American system and the Western rule of law because we hate America and American history and white people and whiteness. And so we're going to replace all of these things with subjectivity and and, uh, collectivism. They're probably not just coming out and saying that, like, I'm guessing that's not what the training entails. I'm guessing it's a little bit more insidious than that. Like it's a it's a little bit more subtle and sly. And so I'm curious, what does it sound like in these trainings in a way that they make it relevant to, you know, the people's jobs in these agencies and in these local governments and and these in these corporations? Does that make sense? Like, what does it actually look like on a, on a practical level in these trainings? Yeah, it, it really they operate on two levels, uh, the explicit and the implicit. And uh, in some cases, they're actually explicit about it. Uh, I, I broke a story about a Department of Education funded organization uh, that was hosting a conference with a keynote speaker uh, who advocated for abolition, abolition of prisons, abolition of schools, abolition of of the of wage schools. labor system, uh, because the schools are prisons. That was the, the kind of metaphor. We need to abolish the public education system and replace it with the kind of social justice system. Uh, And she advocated explicitly for the abolition of all of the kind of American institutions. Uh, And then, you know, when I broke the story, she was uh, shocked and upset because uh, I had I had essentially revealed publicly what they had been saying privately for years. But in most cases, you're right, it's implicit. And I think that the model is not, you know, the kind of revolutionary model of uh, kind of flag waving. Let's overthrow the, the system. Uh, It's implicit, uh, it's insidious, and it's psychological in nature. And what they do is they rely on a series of psychological techniques that, uh, you know, could be described almost as cult indoctrination, where the first step is to convince the employees that there's something uh, fundamentally and inherently wrong with them. They'll say, actually, these are are kind of your internalized white supremacy. Uh, That's a phrase that they love to use, where you think X, Y, and Z is true, but actually X, Y, and Z are merely expressions of your own kind of internal psychology and your own internalized white supremacy. Mm. Mm-hmm. All those things that you thought were good are actually you being racist. So oof, you've got my attention now. I'm, I'm actually racist. I didn't know about it. I don't treat people in a racist way. I don't think racist thoughts. But subconsciously, uh, you know, I'm deeply racist is mm-hmm. what they're telling you. And then what they do, when they, once they've hooked you in with persuading you of your kind of innate psychological uh, aberration, Uh, Then they say, we actually have the solution. Mm. We're going to fix you psychologically. And by fixing you psychologically, uh, we can kind of wash away your sins. And then we can begin this great work of rebuilding society uh, in the image of of kind of anti-racism or social justice. But then they do something very tricky, which is, again, uh, kind of consonant with your basic kind of cult brainwashing techniques. They say, you are going to become anti-racist, but because you're fundamentally and kind of 
uh, kind of irreversibly defined by whiteness, you can never quite get there. Mm. And society, because it's fundamentally based on, on, on institutional racism and white supremacy, can also never quite get there. So you're going to be permanently on this journey of anti-racism that never ends. And uh, we're always going to remind you of your, of your evil, but always dangling the kind of potential for good in front of you. And then they hook you. They have you on a constant journey of anti-racism that never ends. Uh, that, by the way, is fun, it kind of always demanding new funding and multi-million dollar grants right. for the anti-racist trainers. The well, kind of also new- saying that capitalism is terrible. The new priestly class, the capitalism, terrible. Yeah. And it's so wrought with contradictions. Uh, It's so absurd on the face of it uh, that it only works because they bully people and they intimidate people uh, in that which prevents them from speaking out. Uh, But that's changing. Uh, We cannot let this kind of intellectually and morally bankrupt ideology uh, intimidate us anymore. Uh, We have to speak it out. We have to call it out for what it is. Uh, And I think that when enough people have the courage to stand up and and just say, no, I'm not going to do this. Mm -hmm. This is wrong. I'm going to fight this. Uh, This is something that I think could crumble because let's face it. uh, It's a it's a it's a critical race theory is a critical threat to the country, uh, but it has nothing uh, in comparison to the fights that America has won before. Yeah. And I think that once we stand up to it, it will crumble. Uh, like a house of cards. Mm-hmm. I, I've said before that the antidote to critical race theory is is critical thinking. Critical race theory hates critical thinking because like you said, it's a house of cards and it's wrought with contradictions. And once you start poking holes in it, really just kind of asking clarifying questions. Well, okay, what does justice look like? Why are we ascribing guilt and innocence based on people's skin color and not what they've actually done? What does the world look like without prisons, without real schools, uh, with Without police, without the rule of law, can we look throughout history and can we look at what these left wing revolutions that have been waged in the name of equality and liberation have looked like? Have they ended well? Well, thankfully, history is a great teacher and does tell us that. And so critical thinking does a lot, I think, in the way of of pushing back against critical theory. The question is, what do people do who are caught in these situations? Like I get these messages all the time. And quite frankly, I don't really know what to say when people say at my job, I'm having to go through what they call diversity and inclusion training. They typically don't, I guess, call it critical, you know, critical race training, diversity and inclusion. Well, that sounds universally positive and great. So they sit in there, they learn about how whiteness is terrible. They need to divest from their whiteness and their company is, uh, you know, intrinsically racist. And now they're working to be anti-racist, all this stuff. Well, a lot of people who listen to me know that that is a crock, but they don't know what to do. They don't know how to push against it. They don't know what to say. They feel powerless. They say, do I quit or do I leave my church because this is happening in the evangelical church or do I say something? So what is your advice? I know every situation is different, but if someone were to say something, to speak up and to say, you know what, I'm pushing back against this ridiculousness, what would that look like in an effective way? Yeah, there's a lot of different tactics that I can use. And, and my advice would always say, um, go as far as your courage can go. Uh, so, you know, take what risks that you can take. Uh, but certainly, you know, that's a different formula for everyone. But there's a couple things. One is that uh, if it's something that is especially egregious, um, get the documentation, take screenshots, download PDFs, uh, you know, snap video clips, uh, and then send them almost as a whistleblower to media. Uh, send them to, to, to anywhere that you feel like might be uh, carrying the story. Uh, because once a spotlight is shined on these programs, especially in local media context, 
uh, people kind of back away from it very quickly. Uh, and that's happening even in even in very progressive cities like Seattle, where uh, they're running some programs that are kind of uh, crazy and parents don't like it uh, and they start pushing back. Uh, second, find allies within your community, find like minded people that agree and, and show a united front, because uh, if it's one person, uh, it can be dismissed. But if it's 20 people, 30 people, 100 people, uh, they will have to listen. Uh, third, uh, look at the legal recourse. The president's executive order that has followed some of my reporting uh, provides a pathway, uh, uh, you know, either through the attorney general's office or through the kind of local courts where uh, some of these trainings that are kind of explicitly, uh, you know, whiteness is bad and you people are bad because you're white or you people are good because you're this or whatever. Um, that likely constitutes a violation of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. Uh, so there may be grounds for a lawsuit. And when we get enough of these lawsuits going across the country, um, corporations and universities and educational institutions are going to actually look at critical race theory trainings as a legal risk. Uh, and that will outweigh the kind of woke signaling that is driving them currently. Uh, and then, you know, third, I think that, uh, you, you know, there are also other avenues for kind of investigations. I know that uh, from my reporting just in the last 90 days, it's launched a a Department of Justice investigation into the city of Seattle. Mm -hmm. It's launched, launched Office of the Special Counsel investigations into multiple federal departments. It's launched, launched a de uh, Department of Education investigation. Uh, there are people that are starting to take this seriously. And you should reach out to kind of the institutions that might have some legal sway and just start hammering these people. Yeah. Uh, because the ideologies that they're pushing uh, in my view, constitute, constitute uh, racial harassment, constitute uh, uh, work, toxic work environments. Uh, and I think that what I'd love to see moving forward, again, the president who released an executive order on this is a great start, but I think that we need to start a, a concerted campaign to push back against this stuff uh, through every mechanism and every avenue possible. And explain to people, if it's not obvious enough already, but really just spell out, if we take critical theory to its logical conclusion, if it got its way by tearing down all of our institutions, infecting all of our corporations, our school systems, whatever, what do you think it would look like? Like what would justice in education and our, our systems look like in America if critical race theory is able to fully manifest itself? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you'd basically you can go through the the the, concept, the first ten amendments. You can go through the Bill of Rights one by one, uh, and uh, you know certainly the First Amendment would be gone uh, because uh, in, in in critical theory uh, you don't have a right uh, to speak a hate speech if if your speech is kind of enabling a systemic racism uh, that should be actually uh, curtailed and controlled by the government. Uh, certainly the Second Amendment would be gone. Uh, I think there's a, a kind of critical theory-based argument where you could say uh, the right to bear arms has historically been used as a tool of oppression, and we actually need to, to get rid of that. Uh, and you can go and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I think even the 14th Amendment, which guarantees equal protection under the law, um, uh, that would be gone. Critical race theorists and, the, and critical legal theorists have argued that uh, those uh, kind of the idea of equal protection under the law uh, it enables racial disparities, enables uh, kind of uh, race based oppressions, uh, and they want to replace individual rights with group based rights. Yeah. So you'd immediately see right. a legal system that recognizes not the individual, uh, but the kind of immutable characteristics of group based identity. Uh, then you'd see a power structure and an economic structure that distributes 
power, that distributes uh, money, that distributes economic uh, benefit uh, on the basis of, 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 of kind of group identity. And the result of that, uh, we've tried this, right? Historically, uh, we've tried to implement these policies, these kind of ideas, not in the United States, but outside the United States. And they always end in famine, genocide, yeah, economic easy. collapse, death, destruction, uh, mayhem, uh, and despair. So yeah. uh, it's not a very good recipe. I mean, it's like if you're a baker, and you try baking a recipe that always turns out bad every time, at a certain point you have to say, you know what, I think I'm actually gonna try to just make a nice sourdough. That historically has turned out pretty good and yeah. we've evolved the kind of recipe for these breads over a, a thousand years. Uh, but you have a kind of committed uh, utopian, kind of radical utopianist uh, philosophy yeah. that just says, the only thing that's standing in, in the way of a per perfect society on earth uh, is are these kind of uh, outdated conservative institutions. And if we just destroy them uh, through no effort except for the effort of destruction, something beautiful and something perfect will emerge. Uh, unfortunately, uh, that's never happened and uh, I don't think ever will. Yeah. Leftism just continually gets human nature wrong, which that's the reason why socialism, communism, these left wing revolutions have not worked because it doesn't understand basic human nature. I encourage people I have encouraged people before to go to go learn about what happened under Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe, a revolution and change made in the name of liberation for indigenous people that actually ended not just in destroying the white farmers in Zimbabwe, but also the indigenous populations there. Why Zimbabwe is the way it is today is because of these left wing revolutions that are being waged in a much similar fashion to what's going on here. And like you said so well, it always ends in destruction. It doesn't actually lead to the liberation uh, that people are looking for. Um, can you talk a little bit more about the president's um, executive order and, and what it actually accomplishes? Are the agencies listening? Uh, is it going to do anything? It is. You know, uh, they, they released uh, after uh, uh, after kind of the initial volley of reporting about this, uh, the president uh, directed the OMB director to to issue a memo. Uh, and now that memo has been expanded in a formal executive order uh, earlier this week. And it's actually quite breathtaking. The ambition of this executive order uh, is 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 nothing short of astonishing. What it does is it it basically prevents federal funding uh, uh, going towards critical race theory in any capacity. So what it does is first of all uh, it instructs the the federal agencies to stop doing any training uh, based on the principles of critical race theory, which constitutes kind of race a race and sex based uh, uh, harassment. Uh, so it's automatically out at any of the federal institutions, and they've built in some enforcement mechanisms. Uh, it's out in the United States military. Uh, critical race theory had been making inroads the last couple of years and mm. in, uh, in the military. Uh, that's now uh, gone. Uh, and then third, and this is really, I think, the most ambitious and kind of, uh, kind of incredible jujitsu move. Uh, the order says uh, that anyone who wants to do business with the federal government, so this is probably the majority of Fortune 500 companies that have yeah. federal contractors, you can no longer teach critical race theory-based uh, trainings anywhere in your company. Wow. It's now a requirement, just like anti-discrimination elsewhere has been a requirement. Uh, you can't do it. So uh, they're going after the corporations in this way. And then uh, another great piece is that it's saying any federal grants, any federal research grants, academic grants, university grants, none of those can fund critical race theory-based programs moving forward. So this is going to cripple, cripple uh, potentially hundreds of research projects moving forward. Uh, and I think it's basically just saying, 
Uh, we're going to actually use the levers of power to go after this ideology. Um, it has no business. You can do it privately. You can do it on your own time, your own dime. Right. Uh, but this is no longer going to be subsidized by taxpayers. Mm. And they really pulled out all the stops to push at it, uh, to cut off the funding uh, uh, throughout all of our public institutions and even our uh, kind of private institutions. Uh, you're no longer able, going to be able to push this. And uh, certainly there will be fights moving forward, how it's yeah. implemented, how it's enforced. Uh, but I think that uh, for the moment, we have to kind of celebrate. This is an unprecedented Definitely. move, and people have been pushing back against critical race theory intellectually for years, uh, but this is the first time it's actually been operationalized uh, and institutionalized uh, from a position of political power. Yeah. Yeah. You talked about what the conclusions would be like if we didn't push back against it. I'm very, very thankful that the president has made a stand on this, that people like you are reporting on this, that people within their companies and within, you know, federal agencies where unfortunately this is happening, people are speaking up, people are noticing it. I feel like for so long, people just... They didn't notice. But now you have people actually, you know, Nicole Hannah-Jones, Ibram X. Kendi, a lot of these activists actually coming out and just saying the quiet part out loud. Uh, Ibram X. Kendi, I think he is uh, the one who recommended that we, you know, have basically like an anti-racist task force, which is a group of unelected people that would kind of go around and determine which policies are creating or allowing for disparities between racial groups and would take legal action to... Um, you know, overturn those policies or, you know, perhaps uh, in, in, indict the people that are in power. And so I feel like uh, one of the big reasons why this idea that critical race theory has become so popular is the misunderstanding that disparities in outcome always means discrimination and policy. And so when people push back against critical race theory and, you know, push back against the ideas of people like Ibram X. Kendi, they assume that, well, if you're pushing back against that, it's because you're racist, because you like disparities, because you like discrimination. And this is the only way to create equality. Obviously, people like Thomas Sowell have pushed back against this a lot, that discriminate or disparities in outcome doesn't necessarily mean discrimination and opportunity. We are looking for equality of opportunity, not equality of outcome. Correct. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that's part of why it's become so popular is because of that misunderstanding. Do you agree with that? Or, or how do you think this is this has taken root so firmly? Yeah, I think that's the mechanism by which it works. And, and I think what you're describing in my mind is really the kind of uh, rhetorical power of critical race theory. Uh, if you disagree with critical race theory, if you push back, if you dissent, uh, the automatic kind of translation, the pushback is, well, you're only disagreeing with us because that's an expression of your white privilege, your mm -hmm. white internalized white supremacy, your white uh, fragility. Um, so embedded in the argument is that if you disagree with the argument, it's just an expression uh, that you are actually the problem. And uh, this is a kind of circular logic, right? They try to construct it in a way where you can't disagree. Um, so that's one. But two is that uh, these are extraordinarily powerful words. I mean, if you called someone, a, 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 if you call someone a white supremacist, for example, uh, a couple of years ago, I mean, that is like yeah. the worst thing the worst you can thing possibly you can be. be called. Yeah. Right? It's the worst thing you can be. There may be a couple other things like horrible crimes you could commit. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, that is kind of like one of the greatest moral crimes. And justifiably, white supremacy mm -hmm. is wrong. Uh, it's wrong in 1950. It's wrong in 1850. It's wrong in 2020. It's a kind of universal wrong. Uh, but what they've done is that they've essentially 
kind of white supremacized everything. I've read recent articles where they say square dancing is white supremacist, math is white supremacist, (laughs) logic is white supremacist, dogs are white supremacist. Someone told me boats are white supremacist yesterday. Um, And it's like, so what they've done is that they've overplayed their hand. They've actually stripped the, the language of all of its rhetorical power. And I think that's actually going to be a turning point because they no longer have that as a weapon uh, to strike fear into the hearts of people, uh, to intimidate and to bully people into silence and compliance. Um, As they've degraded the rhetorical power of those words, uh, they've also lost a bit of their kind of political power. And then, you know, kind of in the deepest irony, uh, they've actually kind of uh, kind of uh, kind of muddied the waters so that it's really hard to tell kind of what is right and wrong mm-hmm. uh, because they've kind of flooded the vocabulary. They've flooded the op-ed pages with uh, this kind of extraordinary and reckless rhetoric um, that I think most people are kind of confused uh, saying, you know, is, is, you know, is rice aroni, white supremacist? I don't know what to do anymore. Right. Uh, but I think that presents a, a problem, but also an opportunity. Uh, it presents the opportunity where people essentially have nothing to lose. Uh, and they can start fighting back. Uh, they can start retaking the territory. Yeah. You know, I have noticed that simultaneously, while while critical theorists, critical race theorists, you know, I'm a Christian. This is partly, I mean, this is a Christian conservative podcast. So we talk about how this stuff is seeping into evangelicalism and, and the church. And it seems like these activists are getting louder and louder. But so is so is the dissent. And it's a shame that it's kind of taken us a long time, it seems like, to realize that th- that it has a name, that this is what's happening, not just in the church, but in all of our systems. But I agree with you. People of all different faiths and ideologies and backgrounds and academic persuasions, it seems like, are saying, hang on, actually, objective truth is important. Actually, the Western rule of law is pretty good. Actually, capitalism not so bad. The police and prisons are, are probably necessary. That doesn't mean there aren't necessarily, you know, reforms to be made in these areas. But I do see a lot of people pushing back and I hope people feel empowered by that. And unfortunately, you will be called a racist. You will be called a bigot. But like you said, those words, unfortunately, I think it's a travesty that they're losing the power that they should have. But at the same time, it's almost a good thing because people can kind of plow ahead and say, you know what, I'm going to be called a racist, but it almost doesn't mean anything if what you're doing is not actually uh, actually racist. Um, I have I, I one. Think, oh, go ahead, go yeah, ahead. I'd like to, you know, kind of make a point that I think is really important and really relevant to, y- to your views and your audiences is that uh, critical race theory. If you're in, in a church and they're thinking of adopting this stuff, uh, you should remind them of the lineage of critical race theory. Uh, It Mm -hmm. doesn't emerge from the Judeo-Christian tradition at all. Uh, In fact, it's deeply hostile to the Judeo-Christian tradition. uh, And and it really emerges from a kind of radical atheism. Uh, You can trace it back to to Marx, who obviously is uh, deeply hostile to Christianity. uh, And then to the Frankfurt School, where they're trying to take economic Marxism and then kind of grafting identity politics on top of it. Uh, These, again, are kind of militant atheists and deeply hostile to Christianity. And then even the kind of Black Lives Matter movement of the day, uh, again, is, is, is not coming from the tradition of Martin Luther King, uh, who was inspired by the Declaration, inspired by the Bible. Uh, these are coming from a totally different tradition. Uh, they have nothing to do uh, with the kind of Christian sense of justice. And in fact, right. uh, all they want to do is undermine it. So I, I think it is just uh, really the height of folly uh, for churches to be adopting this. Uh, it's, you're adopting something that at the end, uh, wants to destroy you. And, and I think that people should be uh, very vocal and very strong 
uh, in keeping this out of our faith institutions. Yes, you're absolutely right. That's such a good point. And I think that critical theories have become very strategic and very effective at infecting the minds of a lot of Christians by saying, oh, no, 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 this is just a fight for justice. And, you know, God tells us to do justice and to love mercy, not realizing there's been a sleight of hand there. There's been an exchange in the definitions of justice that is not biblical justice, like you said, as a part of the Judeo-Christian tradition, which uh, God's justice is truthful, it's proportionate, it is impartial, and it is direct. And that is not, that is not the justice of critical theory, which is collectivist and doesn't really care what you did or did not do, but ascribes guilt and innocence just based on whatever oppression group, according to your skin color that you are in. But they don't, the people who who kind of buy into critical theory within the church don't realize that when they say, oh yeah, you know, I'm just pushing for racial justice and injustice, that the justice that they are very often pushing for is not real justice. It's not uh, real biblical justice. And so, but you hear, it's a lot of the same things as like in the secular world when you hear that, um, you know, you need to divest of of your whiteness. Whiteness is an an internalized white supremacy is something you need to get rid of. And here's, you know, what you do to do that. And, you know, objectivity and all this stuff is uh, punctuality. That's all in a traditional family. That's all a matter of white supremacy. We also hear that within the church. We hear things that biblical inerrancy, the belief that the Bible is inerrant and authoritative, that that's a part of white supremacy, that having a certain biblical definition of justice is white supremacy, um, that believing that Jesus, even within the church, that Jesus is the only way, truth and life, that's white supremacist. So it's the same thing. It mirrors it very well. They wow. they push back against um, the the institutions of Christianity that have held it together as, you know, the religion that it's been for thousands of years by saying these things, these pillars are actually associated with whiteness. And it is an effort to do exactly what you said. It's actually an effort to make Christianity a form of agnosticism in the same way that it's an effort to make America, you know, some form of socialist dystopia. And I think a lot of people within Christianity and maybe other religions, too, I don't know. They don't realize that in taking on these definitions, they're actually aiding and abetting the destruction of their faith and and of their country. Um, But I just wanted to note that I got one more question for you, and that is, do you think that the riots and the violence and the chaos that we are seeing that seem to have been just exploded over the past few months, but have been building for the past few years? Do you think that any of that is a result of this ideology of critical theory that's being propagated? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, it's not even, you don't even really need like an analytical, analytical capacity to, to say, actually, the riots are, 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 are emerging from this ideology, from this philosophy. All you have to do is go to live streams. All of the kind of protests around the country, especially in the West Coast cities, they're actually live streaming the speeches, live streaming the demonstrations. Uh, you can find them on Twitch and other platforms. And all you have to do is listen to the speeches uh, from the riot leaders, from the protest leaders. Uh, they're really kind of have translated the academic theories of critical mm-hmm. race theory uh, into the kind of language of street protests, where they're saying this protest is about George Floyd, but it's really about uh, dismantling the patriarchy, overthrowing dem- overthrowing capitalism, uh, and burning the Constitution. Uh, and you see these American flags. You know yeah. these flags are are kind of a, a kind of legacy of imperialism. Let's light them up. Yeah. And uh, all you have to do is listen, and with a kind of open mind and and then kind of a, a curious mind. And if you have the background, if you understand where these ideas uh, emerge from, you'll, you'll find that the riots are kind of a crude translation 
of a very refined and intellectual academic theory. Uh, and and they've, they've done something remarkable, which is they've repackaged a 1960s and 1970s cultural Marxism uh, mm-hmm. from Marcuse and the Frankfurt School and others, and they've revived it with a kind of millennial twist, uh, which is kind of the the black clothes and the Antifa flags and the kind of uh, yeah. and the kind of Molotov cocktail throwing uh, kind of new enemies of ICE and the Department of Justice, et cetera. But this is simply kind of reheated and warmed over a 1960s Marxism. Uh, it's nothing new. Uh, and, and to imagine that it's really just about uh, police brutality uh, is to really be blind uh, to the rhetoric that exists on the streets. Uh, so uh, again, there's a direct line from critical theory uh, to the diversity training program in the federal government uh, to the Molotov cocktails uh, that are smashing against government buildings in Portland, Seattle, Chicago, and other cities. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And I think a lot of this has been pre-planned and building up for a long time. The person who wrote In Defense of Looting, which NPR covered, actually said back in April, you know, I feel like there is a, a movement that's brewing. There is a push coming up for, um, you know, for pushing against the system using looting. That was back in April. That was before <laughs> George Floyd. So I think this has been brewing for a long time. And I certainly agree with you that critical theory is at least in large part to blame. Yeah, no, that's right. And and one last tidbit I, I'd leave you with uh, to ponder something kind of very small, but I think very suggestive uh, detail is that you, you just look at kind of the traditional RIP, right? Rest in peace. The idea that uh, in the afterlife, you're going to hopefully ascend to a kind of transcendent existence, something that is uh, peaceful, something that is kind of an end state uh, for human good, light and consciousness. Uh, but the, the the kind of protesters and, and the, the race theorists, they, they've chose rest in power. Uh, because they believe uh, essentially there is no afterlife. The next world is just like ours. Uh, it can be reduced uh, not to a kind of human goodness, but it can be reduced to a struggle for worldly power. Mm. And I think that detail is something that encapsulates yes. and kind of captures everything. Uh, do you want a, a world and a kind of transcendent metaphysics where you can rest in peace in eternity? Or do you want to be trapped in a struggle for political power? Uh, for till the end of time. Uh, That's your choice. Uh, So if you're listening and you want to choose, that's the fundamental choice. What world do you want to believe in? uh, And what are your fundamental convictions? And I think with any kind of thinking uh, and right person, uh, they would uh, choose that uh, wisely uh, as they think about these issues. Yeah. How freeing is it to realize that we can actually regard people as individuals with individual souls and individual personalities and wants and interests and talents and needs rather than ascribing characteristics or guilt or innocence to people based on their on their their group identity? That really is uh, ironically an oppressive way to think that kind of collectivist mentality. And what people need to realize is that it is not in the nature of critical theory to unite. So people who are like, we need reconciliation and, and unity and interse- intersectionality is the way to get there. It's not in its nature. Its nature is division. Its nature and end is destruction, um, as you have explained so well. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Can you please tell everyone where they can follow you, how they can support you? Yeah, great. Uh, I'm on Twitter at uh, Real Chris Rufo, last name R U F O. That's just Real Chris Rufo. Uh, that's been a lot of fun to be on Twitter lately. Uh, and then, if you want to learn more about my other work and read some of my papers and op eds and articles, and then uh, support my work, it's just ChristopherRufo.com. Again, that's R U F O. ChristopherRufo.com. Uh, and it's really great to sit down with you. Thank you so much, Christopher. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you.